Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 79. I mentioned several episodes ago that some of the psalms ascribed to Asaph were written by the historical character who was commissioned by King David to establish a worship choir, a choir that bore his name and continued to produce and publish prayers and hymns for generations. Thus, Derek Kidner says usefully here, in the headings, his name evidently stands for his choir in at least some instances since such laments as 74 and 79 tell of disasters witnessed by no contemporary of David, closed quote. Such is the case here. Psalm 79 is a lament that reflects upon the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, which was, of course, almost 400 years after the death of David. Apparently, the choir of Asaph was very active in the post-exilic community. In the episode on Psalm 73, I mentioned that Book 3 of the Psalter, which runs from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89, is made up mostly of the Psalms of Asaph. Again, either Asaph the person or Asaph the choir. Eleven of the 17 Psalms in this section have that ascription, and many of them are laments reflecting on the destruction of Jerusalem. And they appear to climax, as it were, with Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is the most despairing and the most daring of all the national laments. In verses 38 to 39 of Psalm 89, the psalmist, having reminded God of the promises that he made to David, says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Close quote. Then he goes on to challenge God in verse 49. This, This is the absolute climax of book three in the Psalms. The psalmist almost dares to chastise God. He says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which... By your faithfulness, you swore to David. Wow, it's almost hard to hear that. Asaph says, Lord, it looks to me like you have broken your promises to David. Lord, I'm, I'm I'm just putting it out there, Lord. Prove me wrong, strike me dead, but answer my question, Lord. What in the world is going on? That is bold praying. But apparently, in extreme circumstances, that kind of praying is permitted. And we're working our way up to that in these psalms. Most national lament psalms have at least four distinct aspects. There is complaint, there are questions, there is prayer, and there is hope. And all of those are legitimate ingredients in biblical faith. It's okay to express pain or sadness. It's okay to be destabilized and disoriented by disaster. It's okay to be shocked and alarmed by the severity of God's judgment. It's okay to be confused and even upset by the darkness and mystery of God's providence. All of that is still faith if you take it and express it in the presence of Almighty God. And that's what we see the psalmist doing here. 
He isn't hiding from God. He's wrestling with God. And that has been part of the journey of biblical faith since the very beginning. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the ascription and moving on to verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Verses 1 to 4 are classic lament. The word lament just means to tell God about your pain, your fear, your weakness, your shame, and your sorrow. We do this not because God doesn't know about these things already. We do it because that's just how faith works. It's how prayer works. It begins where we are at. This is what we see Hezekiah doing in 2 Kings 19. He received a letter reporting all the taunts and threats of Assyria, and he literally took that letter and he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before him and he prayed. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God, closed quote. And then he basically just reads the letter to God. And, and it isn't as if God didn't know it was in the letter. Of course he did. But this is where prayer begins. You just tell God what's going on and how you're feeling about it. You lay it out. And you invite him in. And that's what's happening here. Then in verse 5, Asaph asks the question that he's been wrestling with. He says, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? It's interesting to note that he doesn't ask why. He asks how long. I imagine that Asaph already knew the answer to his why question. The why part was easy. The people of Israel made a covenant with a holy God. They stood on the mountains and they pronounced the blessings and the curses. The answer to the why question was Deuteronomy 28, 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you, closed quote. That's the answer to the why question right there. And, and that's why Asaph, the worship marshal, never bothered to ask it. Instead, he asked, how long? Asaph is not confused by God's justice. He is shocked by God's severity. This is too much, God. This is too far. This is too final. We expected a plague or a military defeat. We budgeted for those things. But this is total national, tribal, familial, personal, and spiritual devastation. We are consumed by your anger, God. Verse 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. The structure of this psalm is fairly straightforward. There is the recitation of concerns in verses 1 to 4, followed by the big question we just looked at in verse 5. And that leads to an extended prayer in verses 6 to 9, which we're into now. 
And then in verse 10, you have a, another big question followed by a further prayer. So here in verses 6 to 7, we have this first part of the first prayer. And in it, the psalmist asks God to redirect his anger toward the people who more obviously deserve it. Why aren't you this severe with the Babylonians, God? They're way worse than us. We may not be very good at following your laws, but they're not even trying. They are total and complete pagans. So why are you so focused on us? In several places in the Old Testament, we find prophets and psalmists distressed by the fact that God generally used pagan nations to chastise his covenant people. How was that fair, they wondered. We are bad, yes, and we deserve our punishment, yes, but they're worse. Shouldn't they be punished as well? God answered that question back in the days of Amos when folks were upset about God's use of the Assyrians. In Amos 3, 1 to 2, the prophet said, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities, closed quote. God is more severe with his people because they are his people. Like a father, you, you don't spank the neighborhood kids when they misbehave. You spank your own kids because you love them and because you're committed to them. And that's the situation here. God does judge the nations, but he is more attentive and more severe with respect to his own people. But there's hope in that too. And, and, and so even as the psalmist laments the severity, he identifies the hope implicit in that reality. Since God is so committed to us, there is every reason to hope that he will forgive our sins and move to restore us. We are his people. And evidently, he cares a great deal about us. And so hope enters in with verses 8 to 9. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Notice that there can be no redemption apart from atonement for sins. Forgiveness of sins is essential to the biblical concept of redemption, Old Testament and New. The people want to be forgiven so that they can go home. That's the hope being expressed in this marvelous prayer. Willem van Gemmeren says here, Hope looks to God as our Savior. He is the deliverer of his children, i.e., those who are his by covenant. However, his children have to submit themselves to their heavenly father as they await his salvation, Close quote. The intense covenant commitment of God to Israel as his child gives the people hope that he will save them. He will do what is necessary to deal with their sins and to restore them as a nation. But they don't know when, and they don't know how. And as we all know, waiting and wondering is really hard. But they hold on to the one thing they know. God is committed 
to them. He is connected to them by covenant. And therefore, his glory is caught up in their salvation and sanctification. They can't fail because that would say something untrue about God to the nations. And that's where the psalmist goes next. Verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Save us, Lord, and avenge us. That's what he's saying. Let the nations understand why this happened, that it was about us and about our sin, and let them regret having taken advantage of our weakness. Let them understand the other side of this covenant reality. Let them experience the wrath of the Father against those who have abused his Son. Now, sometimes we as modern readers are uncomfortable with this aspect of the lament psalms in the Old Testament. But the distance between New Testament saints and Old Testament psalmists is not as great as we sometimes believe. In Revelation 6, the Apostle John sees a vision of the saints whose souls hover beneath the throne of Almighty God. They are waiting for the final consummation, and apparently, they are eager for the final judgment and the vindication of the saints. Revelation 6.10 says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Closed quote. See, it's not wrong to desire vindication and justice. It it is wrong to pursue it and to execute it personally. In Romans 12, 19, the apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Quote. So, Paul doesn't tell Christians not to desire justice and vindication. He merely tells them to leave it to the wrath of God. And that's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 79. He doesn't say, Oh God, give me a chance to kill me some Babylonians. He says, return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Meaning, give out perfect justice to those who have abused us and hated you. The psalm ends on a note of trust and faith. Verse 13, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. We won't stop praising, even from inside our very long and very painful time out. We are your people. We believe that you know what you're doing. We believe that when we have learned what you want us to learn, you will restore us and renew us and return us to the land, to the worship and to our calling forever. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One, in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 